it's amazing to me how the more interconnected and accessible we become as a society, the more miserable most lawyers become because we find ourselves having to respond to all of our clients at two o'clock in the morning within 15 minutes. And it's tough to balance those things. Uh, that's why I am super, super duper excited that Regina Edwards was willing to come on our show to talk to about it, to talk to us about it, because I think she does such a good job setting the right expectations, setting the boundaries and still wowing the client with the deliverables while still having a wonderful life. So I assume that all of you watching this know her, but if not, she's the owner and managing attorney of Edwards Family Law. She's been practicing law in Georgia since 2001. Her firm is paperless and flat fee and has been since 2007. She has 20 years of complex family law litigation experience, leveraging this experience into systems and processes that allow her to represent clients while remaining virtual and traveling 75% of the year. She enjoys traveling, having been to 35 countries and counting, as well as reading, watching football, running, yoga, hiking, and camping, and spending time with family and friends. Um, and she has the most FOMO Facebook group in the entire world, Lawyer on the Beach. I think there's like 7,000 of us in it. And like literally everybody is like, this is the most amazing place that I'm working from this week. No, this is the beach. No, this is the mountain cabin. No, this is the, the ski chalet. It is awesome. And I bookmark so many places from it and then have to travel there. So thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Um, anything else you want to add about the bio while Greg is dropping all the links for everybody? No, it makes me sound cool, <laughs> which I like. So I figure it's... <laughs> I got did write it. All right. So I want to talk about our last episode briefly, and then we're going to dive into today's topic on client boundaries and handholding, how to wow your clients while still having a life. Our last episode, we had Arjon Robbins of How to Manage on. Arjon talked to us about how to market a small law firm. So went into what How to Manage is, how they help firms, and gave us some tips and tricks from his awesome background as running a firm, being the Florida Bar Attorney that helped other attorneys run their firm, and then obviously now with HTM. But enough about that. So client boundaries and handholding. You have, I mean, I want to say you have it all figured out, but like in addition to that, you have like such a good system for so many of these things. I'm curious to hear, like you started in 2001, you put a lot of this stuff in a place in 2007. Like what was the impetus for that? So I actually did not put a lot of this stuff into place in 2007. It was much later on. So it really was sort of trial and error. So I've been flat feet for a really, really long time. And so eventually I just kind of got to the point where, because obviously flat fee is all about efficiency. We're delivering legal services in an efficient way. Um, and we're helping people, you know, maximize their legal fees. They're not spending a ton of money on what should be a pretty simple case. So from my end, I am super incentivized to deliver legal services in an efficient way because I'm not charging by the hour. So that has always sort of led me to how can I do it? How can I deliver things in a way where the client is happy, but I'm also not being driven crazy. So it definitely has evolved. I did not start off just roaring out of the gate, having this like nailed. So it definitely was sort of a trial and error process and just sort of things I've observed over the years um, in terms of what worked and what didn't work, what my clients respond to, what they don't respond to. And that's sort of how, to, how I've arrived at where I am today which some would describe as me giving no Fs, and that's not really what it is. What it is is, you know, this is my business. This is my firm. I get to choose how clients work with me. I'm very upfront about that from the very beginning, 
and they can make the choice. You know, some attorneys really might feel like they have, they want an attorney that will give them their cell phone number and respond to them at three o'clock in the morning. And that's their prerogative and that's their right. And there are attorneys out there that will do that and provide that service. And that's certainly, they can do that. I am not that person. (laughs) So we're very clear. And so for me, the biggest thing is setting expectations in the beginning. My answering service asks people in the very first intake, are you comfortable with, with paperless? Are you comfortable with scanning? Do you have an email address? All of those things from the very beginning so the person isn't you know, taken aback later on when they realize this is how we're delivering legal services. So I sort of set that expectation from the beginning. And if someone can't doesn't fit within my business model, then you know, we're happy to refer them to someone else that, you know, might better suit their needs. I love that as a screening question. Like I've never considered, obviously, you oh, screen yeah, after- <laughs> everything okay? Uh, yeah, no, I'm looking for it. Um, I have my other screen off to the side. So oh. I'm looking for my exact screening question, but I definitely ask, and I think I've phrased it in a way where it's not really off-putting. Um, but they, yes, they're trained to ask, are you comfortable with paperlessness? Are you couple, Are you comfortable with scanning PDF documents? And are you okay that the firm is paperless and will communicate mostly via email? That's what we ask. So we kind of make it about them, not, hey, this is what we're doing. You need to get on board or not. We just say, are you okay with this? And sometimes they say, Ugh, that doesn't really work for me. Great. Here's a list of attorneys that might assist you. So yes, we definitely do it from the very beginning. Well, I love that because like, I know, I mean, obviously the screening questions, you know, do you have a case that we can actually help with? Are you in an area? Can you afford our services? But I love the concept that you guys have put this kind of culture fit screening into it. Oh, 100%. <laughs> so, and then I know um, you also have a whole thing with clients on expecting like when to get responses and what days are closed and all that. What, can you tell us that in a little bit more detail? Yes. So I do a few things. Um, can I share my screen or no? That Not that kind of party. You could, but it'll mess up. We'll all have our face half cut off. Okay, so don't worry about it. So I'll just explain what I have then. So what I do for my email return is my email signature. I kind of put expectations in my email signature. So my email signature has my name and it says emails checked twice a day only. So that's sort of an expectation that I'm setting. Um, And my current one says I will be unavailable February 14th, 18th, because my birthday is next week and I don't work on my birthday week. So that has been on my email for the last two weeks. Everybody knows. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And then I have my phone, my um, my website, my if you want to pay, here's my link. Here's my link. If you want to upload documents, I also have another tagline that says we close Fridays at noon. And then my last tagline is we all work remotely and at different hours. We do not expect a response outside of your normal working hours. And please allow some time for us to respond to you. Thank you for your patience. So that really goes out to everybody to let them know that I personally, I don't really subscribe to this culture of immediacy. And I just because you email me at 459 does not mean that I need to respond before close of business. So I just sort of put that out there, like, you know, sort of be patient and, you know, we're not, we're not emergency room doctors. I'm a divorce lawyer. It's not that serious. So, you know, let's just sort of pause and allow me to think about things before I respond. So I kind of have that expectation in my emails. It's in my client portal. It's on my website. It's kind of everywhere. So, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that we're not emergency room, but I find, I feel like family law is the most emotionally charged area of law, at least for the Oh, most. it is. It is. 
So where did, like, I'm trying to get the question the right way. Like, where did this come about? Like, how did you sit down and come up with like, look, I am going to set this very specific boundary and set these expectations. Like, was it reactionary to something? Was it you acting intentionally towards the firm oh, that you want? That would be nice. The latter. No, it was definitely the formal. It was, I was about to have a stroke. <laughs> gotcha. uh, it, it was too, I remember exactly what it was. It was 2015. I had done this really hard, highly charged custody case. I felt like I was losing my mind. And that's when I kind of decided to do a sabbatical and take, a leave of absence from practicing law for about six months and kind of figure out what I really wanted to do. And I thought I was just burnt out on family law because it was exhausting. And during that period of time, it allowed me to think and drill down. And I realized, you know, all right, Regina, you're 38 years old. You really don't want to learn new tricks at this point. So <laughs> what, what is it about family law that you don't like and what can you change in order to make it more likable? And that's where I kind of came up with this process of I don't need to even have a phone, let alone answer the phone. I don't need to respond to emails right away. I don't even need to check emails right away. And we just sort of baked in the processes from the beginning. So we weren't switching it on clients sort of midstream. And quite frankly, we've encountered pretty, very little resistance to it. I feel like if you explain your expectations in the beginning and you are consistent with enforcing those boundaries, clients are really respectful of that. And I should also add that I do add a very sort of high level of, of screening and I can kind of tell if a client is going to be okay with that or not. And if I can tell that they're not, then I just decline them as a client. Um, so I kind of avoid those issues from the beginning and sort of stack the deck. But I really am trying to curate a client base that is patient, is that is respectful of everybody's time, that realizes that we are going to do a great job for them. And I think one of the ways we communicate that is to make it about them, because obviously they don't care about my other cases and I don't expect them to care about my other cases. So what I say is when I'm working on your case, I want to do deep work on your case. When it's time for me to look at all the bank statements and you know figure out the settlement proposal and figure out how to divide up your assets, I don't want to be bothered by other people calling. I don't want to be bothered by emails. I want to be able to focus on your case and give it the attention it needs so I can prepare the best. And that clients really seem to understand it when you put it that way, when you make it about them, is that I don't want to interrupt your case by taking calls from someone else, as opposed to, I don't want to take calls from you when I'm working on someone else's cases. It's a sort of subtle shift, but um, it seems to work. <laughs> well, and I also love that you're like the, the, the attorney I know that is most interested in like their turndown drip. Like, how do I tell this person we're not taking the case in the, in the nicest way possible? It, it really became a problem. It was so frustrating because I was using Dibsado for intake for a while and it, it's a decent system, but it didn't have native texting. So we were sending emails saying, I'm so sorry, we can help you with your case. Here's a link to someone that can help you. Tons of information. People don't read their emails. And that's what we discovered. So we would get nasty calls saying you haven't called us back. And then I would say, no, we sent you an email at 3.44 PM on April 14th. And it, it, sometimes people even wouldn't call. They would just go to Google and say, I called this lawyer and she never called me back. And which is so frustrating. So we do use text to communicate with potential clients where we send them the same information, but people apparently look at their texts and not emails. And that has helped tremendously. People have been really grateful that we're responding right away, even if we can't take their case, that we're referring to someone that can help them. If I'm referring them to a bar association or if I'm saying you need to file in a different county or you need to file in a different state, they're at least thankful that we're responding and it doesn't take a lot of time or effort for me because I've got about 150 canned email texts. So it's just sort of clicking and <laughs> they don't know that. 
So yeah, along those lines, I wanted to talk, like, did your, did the size of your firm change as you made a lot of these decisions as well? Not as I did, but it has changed over the years. So I used to have a, a large firm where I had eight employees, I think was the most, well, it's not large, but definitely larger than I am now because I don't have any associates now. I had an associate, I had several paralegals, an office manager, receptionist, just kind of regular mid-sized firm staff. And I I don't know. I just decided I just didn't want that anymore Um, because clients really wanted me to be intimately involved in their case. And I really didn't mind doing it because I really like actually doing legal work. So I intentionally scaled down to where it is just me and my support staff. And I think clients really, you know, sort of appreciate that. But it's still not me conversing and talking with the clients every day because that would drive me crazy. Well, and I think that's the most important point I want to make sure that everybody catches. Like, you genuinely enjoy being a lawyer. So you've created this system that allows you to be a lawyer as you are in that respect. You are very much the opposite of me. I genuinely enjoyed not being a lawyer. (laughs) I may get there at some point. I'm just not there yet. So I'm super cognizant about I am enmeshed in the firm and that's fine for me now. I'm happy. So, you know, my clients are happy. So I don't see it changing for a while, but yes, I do enjoy legal work. I, I, really love the sort of puzzle aspect of after I get the discovery, I hate actually getting discovery, but once I get it, I like sort of figuring out a solution. You know, how can we get these people on with their lives in the best way possible? And I really do enjoy that. So it's just a matter of, I need to be able to get to that point without being driven crazy. <laughs> so what's the structure of your firm currently now? I know it's you doing, you know, all the attorney work, the vast majority of legal work, mm-hmm. but what are you supported by? So I have two paralegals. Everybody's remote. We never see each other. My paralegal, I call her Snuffleupagus sometimes. Um, she is in, it's not going to be anything you're not here, but in Athens, which is about an hour and a half away from my office. So it just didn't make sense for her to come in. And my other virtual paralegal is in Florida. She's from Georgia, but she ended up moving to Florida and the firm she was working with just wasn't going to accommodate virtual work. So she works virtually and I have a full-time intake person. That's it. And then support it, I guess, I mean, there's got to be an answering, an answering service or no? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I have an answering service. Um, I have two, actually. <laughs> I have a main and a backup. So um, I do I use two different uh, services. One allows a shorter intake form and one allows a longer intake form. So I really do a lot of screening from the beginning. And it's it's been super helpful because I would say probably 50% of the calls that come in, I decline just based on that first intake form. So it saves us a lot of man hours. Makes total sense. Or woman hours. <laughs> We're all women. <laughs> so when it comes to that sort of like setting, setting the boundaries, but also making sure you're wowing clients with the work, do you feel like you need to push that a little bit more from the clients the minute you're cutting back on the boundaries? Or are you like, I've been doing it long enough this way. Like I know that we're going to find the right people that get it. Can you walk me through a little bit of that thought process? I actually hadn't thought too much about it. And I think it's because I know that my systems work and I know my clients like it. And I know that they'll like it as soon as they see them. So I, I don't even think about it. I just, these are the boundaries this is what we're going to do. So when someone signs up, I immediately send them the portal. So they get the portal, they see it's a personalized portal. It has tons of information about it. That's specific to their case. It's got instructions on there. It's got a cute little Canva presentation that explains how to work with my firm. So they're just kind of dialed in from the beginning that this is sort of my home base that I can go to when I need to, to ask questions. 
she's going to pay attention to this portal because she told me not to email her. Please don't email me. <laughs> I have to use this portal. And it, it really works because they get an email when something is posted to the portal. And that's just how we communicate. And it's just one place where they need to go and they don't have to worry about missing emails or something get, kind of get lost and getting lost in the shuffle because it's just all right there for them. Okay, so then let me flip that a little bit because you you talked about like as you made this transition you kind of rolled things out to clients slowly so it wasn't just like hey tomorrow we're totally changing this am i right in that correct yes so i have gone through i don't even talk about how many systems i've gone through um <laughs> it's a lot because <laughs> i have tested a lot but in general i have always had a client portal way before before dropbox existed so I've always been obsessed with how do I deliver services in a better manner. So yeah, before Dropbox, I was using an online server to deliver, to deliver discovery electronically. And people were kind of freaking out about it. <laughs> but I would say, look, here's my paralegal's number. She will call you. She will walk you through it. Um, so we've been using some semblance of what we are now. We just kind of hopped from, you know, different provider to different provider as, you know, they evolved. And as I evolved and as I didn't want to pay a whole bunch of money um, to the systems that we have now, but the concept has been the same, that we're delivering things online and not sending paper. And we've done that for a really, really long time. So from the standpoint of a law firm owner listening to this or watching it now, who wants to make that transition that you've made, who wants a little bit better boundary set for clients, who wants to be more flexible paperless, is there like a first step that they have to do or is it just everybody's going to be on kind of their own plan schedule? I don't know what the right word is there. Well, I would suggest starting with one thing at a time and just making sure that you're comfortable with it. And I think one of the things that I talked about a couple of years ago that people thought was kind of revolutionary at the time was this concept of, I don't accept phone calls. And I think, People don't think it's quite so crazy anymore, especially once I explain it. And once COVID hit, people weren't in the office to answer their phones. And they, a lot of people didn't have voice over IP, so they realized I literally can't answer my phone, so I have to look into other options. So I was just suggest starting with one policy and sort of making sure you've got that sort of nailed down before moving to the next. So you're just kind of, I don't know, the proverbial putting the frog in the water and slowly turning the water up so they get used to it as opposed to just sort of dumping them in all at once and saying, here are all my new policies, deal with it. It's just, uh, that's how I would do it if, if you have the complete opposite policies and now you want to switch to something different. So can you flush out that about the not having a phone? Okay, yeah, so I haven't had a phone in 10 years. So um, I've had an answering service. The answering service sends messages and I look at them when I want to and I reply. So the biggest question I get is, what if the court is calling? And my answer is, so what? I mean, does the judge really expect that I'm going to be sitting in my office waiting for them to call? And the answer is no. And a lot of times it's not productive if I did answer the phone because they're saying, hey, are you available for a court hearing next week? I don't know my client schedule. <laughs> I do not know. So if they call and leave a message, hey, this is Judge So's office, seeing if you're available for a hearing next Tuesday. Well, guess what? I have time to contact my client and ask, hey, are you good for the state? And I can call them back with an answer. And usually the response is, oh, thanks for calling me back so quickly. I've, I've never gotten static. Why haven't you answered your phone? It's just it does not have to be an emergency. And so I will say this caveat with intake calls. I do not practice personal injury and I do not practice criminal. So I know with, with certain practice areas, you have to answer those calls. You have to get those fee agreements out 
right away. And you should have system in, systems in place to do that that actually don't include you. Um, but I am neither of those things. I'm family law. And it's not an emergency. You just want to divorce the person that you've hated for 20 years. Like, it's not going to change in the next 20 minutes, people. So I intentionally slow down the intake process so they kind of get a taste for, honestly, what it's going to be like working for us because you're not going to call and I'm going to respond within five minutes. It's not how life works. So I intentionally sort of slow it down and walk them through the process and show them our systems and give them homework to do and, and those kinds of things. It just kind of helps them prepare for how we're going to deliver service to them. And I do not know if that answered your question. No, it, it totally did. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting. I think I think it was John Morgan. Um, if not, he's getting credit for it. He talks about like as a PI lawyer, you're really just a plumber. Like the house is backing up with water and whoever can get there quickest. But Oh, but Yeah. But you, yeah. on the flip side, have created this, like, where they want you. Like, it is your brand. It is you representing them through the family law stuff. And so you were able to kind of put yourself on a pedestal. And I don't mean that in a negatively judgmental way. I mean, like, truly, you know, you are emphasizing your accessibility as part of the benefit of having you as the lawyer. Yes. So what, what I had to do when I was kind of struggling with this, I, I decided to think of myself as Oprah. And yes, I realize I am not Oprah. That's fine. However, <laughs> I just thought about it in a way, if you wanted Oprah to speak at your kid's graduation, I mean, do you really think that there's a number out there that you can just call and Oprah's going to be like, hey, this is Oprah. Yeah. What do you need? No, there's a whole system in place where you have to go through people and channels and all of that to to get her. That's kind of how it's set up. And I And I think a reasonable client would expect the same thing of a busy attorney who has been practicing for 20 years and I'm not sitting by my phone ready to answer my cell and say, yes, I can absolutely file your divorce in the next 20 minutes. I think a reasonable client would not expect that. And I want reasonable clients because it makes my life easier. Right. That's true. It's almost like if you have, if you have made your family law case truly into an emergency, you were not a good fit for us to begin with. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, yeah, if yeah. you have fires that need to be put out in the very beginning, it, it makes it really tough for me because even if you put those fires out and you did such a good job and you're so reactive, they want you to be that reactive to everything. It's like, okay, I was fine being reactive when your kids were going to get chipped in foster care, but I'm not going to be so reactive when someone forgets to bring cleats to the soccer game. Like those are different <laughs> things. Yeah. Now, now I'm feeling we need like, we need a meme of you where it's like, you get a templated turn down response and you get this. <laughs> oh, I have that. It is in my welcome packet. I actually define what an emergency is, you know, defects, which is department of family and children services in Georgia. Defects is at your door. Um, that's an emergency or your children have been kidnapped. And then I actually define that not not taken to Tennessee to grandma's house without you approving, but literally kidnapped that's an emergency and you need to call 911 so i define what's an emergency and what's not and i say while these issues are very important they don't rise to the level of emergency like your ex says they're moving out of state and they want to take your kids yes that is a very important issue and i'm not belittling it but i'm saying it's not an emergency we will deal with that during business hours yeah i want to transition um oh here we go we got some questions in here so will this video be, uh, Jennifer asked, will this video be able to watch later? Yes, it is live. It will stay here where you are now. It will be there for until the internet burns down. Um, we have a question about what about immigration? Is it more like PI or family? Do you know? I would guess more PI or, uh, or criminal where you need to get the people signed up right away. The, the only caveat is I, I know some people advocate having a non-attorney salesperson. I don't know how you sign people up without analyzing their legal case. I've never really been able to figure that out because 
you know, there's certain thresholds that we need in order to determine if they have a case. Criminal is different. Like if you were accused of hitting someone in the head with a baseball bat and you you have been arrested and you're in jail, you need a lawyer. Like there's not a lot of screening that comes in at that point. Right. You need a lawyer. Um, but there's times with immigration and, you know, family law and other cases where you just flat out might not have a case. So just because you have money and you have a problem doesn't necessarily mean you have a legal case. So I really do like to pre-screen all of that to see if it's an issue that I can actually handle. But with immigration, I think it would be sort of in the middle where you can have some pre-screening questions and please don't ask me to try to guess what there would be, right. but I don't know how long has your spouse been in the country? I don't know. Some just general pre-screening questions that would just help it narrow it down just a little bit to see if it's something you possibly could do. Um, and then they could be funneled with whatever CRM system to, um, to either get them on the phone with someone right away or follow up email or, or, or something like that. But I think the important part is, is the triage in the beginning. There's got to be some questions that can put people in different funnels. Totally. All right. Andrew, if that didn't answer your question, go ahead and uh, let us know a follow-up. We'll jump to that. So I want to transition to flat fees. Um, I, as a now PI lawyer, I am on the, I'm not flat fee, but contingency. Like right. for me, the whole billable hourly concept, like is completely against your client's interest and technology like you want 100 time yeah uh so what was what was that like because i feel like so many people say well family law, like i don't know my client's gonna call me and want to cry for an hour and a half a day and obviously that goes back to the boundaries but like in Ooh, terms of the, i'm switching to flat fees like walk me through that process Woo, there's like a whole TED talk and thankfully I actually did one. So no, there's a YouTube video that I did with Sonia Lockany who does uh, flat fees and trademarks. It's about an hour and a half. Um, it's on my, my YouTube channel. People wanted to watch it where we really sort of deep dive into it. But I really just sort of start with the premise of when people say, you know, my client's going to want to call me all that time. And is that a flat fee issue or is that a client control issue? And I think that's a client control issue. So I really don't have that problem. I don't have clients that want to call me all the time because we've discussed in the beginning, don't call me and don't email me. Messages go in the portal. And if it's important, really important, I'll get back to you the same day. If it's just sort of, you know, regular type of importance, I'll get back to you in a, in a couple of hours. Um, so sort of building in that from the beginning sort of helps control everything. And then I think people have a misconception about what flat fees are. I'm not saying give me $5,000. I'm going to do your entire divorce case from soup to nuts. That's not what that is. <laughs> it just means I'm not tying my value to time. So I charge on the high end for uncontested cases. I would probably say the average is maybe 2,500 or so for an uncontested. I charge anywhere between five and 15 and I do because I can and I know that my agreements are going to stick and it's based on 20 years of experience and, and research and and they're really going to be particularized. Some attorneys are quite frankly downloading the free forms that you can get on a land legal's website giving them their client to fill out and filing those suckers. So I mean if you're paying $2,500 sometimes you're getting $2,500 worth of service. So um, yeah yeah definitely. I told somebody today that had a divorce with no issues and no assets and they wanted to pay someone look these are free forms here you go you can just fill in your name and you guys are gonna good to go um, but obviously everyone's not gonna fit into that category so yes people just kind of have the misconception that it's one fee and it's just not i charge by stages so i charge i charge an initial fee up front and then usually there's a mediation fee and a trial fee 
And then there's also a la carte things for depositions or excessive hearings. And I almost never use those fees. I usually just get three payments and that's it. Cause I make the payments hefty enough that it's, it's honestly, it's enough. Um, and for people that say that my fees are high, I posted Lee Rosen's fee agreement in my group and I did cause he was on his website. So I figured he didn't care who saw it. <laughs> and I thought it was high. I mean, he's charging $15,000 like for an uncontested divorce with no kids. And for a contested, he would charge for each issue. So if you add up all the issues, you're talking like $50,000 for one hearing. If you have to talk about alimony, if I have to open my mouth about alimony, he was charging $15,000. So I essentially used his concept and just lowered my fees where I'm just charging per stage and a la carte. And it includes preparation, which to me is the best thing because clients always worry about that. And then from a lawyer's perspective, perspective, you're worried about, well, what if the case settles on the courthouse steps? Well, thank goodness I only charge you for preparation. The trial was free. Uh, so that's why I do it that way. Um, so those are the biggest concerns that I hear when people switch to flat fees that the case is going to go out of control and you have the ability to control your fees by putting them in the fee agreement for different stages and different activities that can happen in a case. So you'll be covered. So I want to come back to that, but I want to address, uh, we had a question from Ami here who, uh, he asks, what do you do in circumstances when a parent is do something that is a quasi emergency, let's say leaving the jurisdiction improperly with the children? Um, quasi, you mean if someone emails me about it on the weekend? Uh, what do you do in, I guess. Well, well, I guess it just depends. If it's a temporary trip, I just could care less. Um, I mean, a lot of times people, well, the, technically the order says that she can't leave the jurisdiction and she's going to Disney World for the weekend. I, that is not why I went to law school. And the point of the order is not about weekend trips. So if it's something like that, I just, that's not really something that I deal with. If someone's literally trying to up and move with the kids, I actually would consider that emergency and I would deal with it at the time. It doesn't happen that often. Gotcha. Right. Ami, if that didn't uh, answer your question, go ahead and jump in. So I want to circle back to the flat fees. I, I assume that your fees have gone up over time because of how awesome you are. And also that you have figured out exactly how much time things normally tend to take. But on like day one of switching over to flat fees, how did you come up with what to charge? Oh, I pulled it out of my behind, which is not recommended because it did not work out. Um, it was real, real sketchy there for a while. So how I started was I, I left a firm and I took all my clients with me and honestly, I wanted an influx of cash. So I just said, here's what I'm going to charge you to finish your case. And for like 20 clients, that's a pretty decent chunk of change that you get to spend right away. And again, you need to check your bar rules because Georgia allows you to, if you put it in your fee agreement to put the flat fee and you're operating and use it immediately, it's earned when paid not every state is like that. There are some outlier states that says you have to put it in trust and you can't transfer the money until you've completed the work. So that is definitely a state specific issue. So that gave me an influx of cash right away. So some of them I priced about right. Some I definitely did not. And what I used to say is when I was kind of selling my flat fees, you know, if I build you hourly, it would cost you a ton more. And that was definitely true for probably the first five to 10 years of me doing this. But since I've gotten more streamlined and more systemized and more automated, the opposite is true now, um, where it's, I don't know how people quite frankly, in family law cases come up with three, $400,000 bills. I just, I could not make myself do that amount of work that would generate that amount of fee because it just doesn't take that long to do anything <laughs> in our office. So. <clears throat> 
All right, I have a um, got a couple of questions on LinkedIn. I want to jump to. We're switching over from the Facebook questions to the LinkedIn questions. Michael Mendoza asks, "How do you handle fee award hearings with a flat fee arrangement in family law proceedings?" Ooh, good question. Um, <laughs> so it depends. So if it's a contempt the ultimate case, lawyer answer. Oh gosh, I know. So if it's a, a simple contempt case, a, a contempt would be someone in the divorce was supposed to pay five hundred bucks a month of child support and they didn't. And, and it's pretty clear cut. I'll charge a flat fee and I will die on that hill in court. <laughs> I will say I charge a $2,500 flat fee to represent this poor little lady that had couldn't pay a retainer, et cetera. And I, and I just refuse to justify the amount of time. And usually that flies with, with smaller fees like that. It's usually not a problem. It is really hard to get judges away from the mindset for larger fees the concept of the flat fee. They just want to see a breakdown. If they want to see a breakdown, I can give them a breakdown because I, the systems that I have in place, I'm documenting every documenting everything that I do anyway. I'm just not billing the client. So for those cases, if it's a divorce case where I know I'm going to ask for fees in advance, we're documenting anything, everything anyway. So it's super easy to just go back and slap the you know hourly fee on it and produce an itemized bill. So it's not ideal. I wish that you know, we could kind of get away from that. And with certain judges, it's okay. But I have found it's it's a lot easier to just present an itemized bill. And, you know, I probably could be more rah, 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 and you guys need to change and you need to accept my flat fee. But I'm not out here trying to change the world, people. I just want to get paid. So <laughs> I will <go>. itemize. <laughs> and not have to spend more time tracking the time that you spent to then put it in, to then send the invoice, to then shake down the client for it. Now I... uh Oh yeah, it's a, just the freedom I have with not billing people is, I mean, that was, that's a part-time job in and of itself was just billing clients. And I don't have to bill because I charge enough up front where, you know, I'm just not sending regular bills. So when we set mediation, it's super easy. My paralegal, when we set the mediation, she looks at the fee agreement, it's a $1,500 mediation fee. They send them the invoice and that's it. So it, not having to bill, not sending clients bills, no one's asking, what are you doing every day? They don't care because they've already paid. It's a flat fee. They're, they, at this point, just want results, and they don't give a shit how long it takes me to do it. Sorry, I curse. They're just, okay. um, yeah, they're just interested in results. <laughs> All right, so we got another question from uh, a question from Kareem Ross on LinkedIn, and then Ami, I'm coming back to you, and then Andrew on Facebook. Uh, Kareem asks, how long did it take you to establish and build your brand, not being so accessible but still able to provide effective counsel? Uh, it took a while. So I'm 20 years in at this point. So I, I tried a long time ago and failed spectacularly. So if you want to go on a fun little wild goose chase, just Google my name and reviews and you'll see some bad reviews from around the 2010, 2011 era <laughs> because I was not getting it right. And I'm one of those people that when I get a, a bad review, I, I do take it personally, but I also take it personally. I actually see if there's a thread in there that makes sense. And really the common theme was um, that I hide behind my email. That was one of the accusations and that they just didn't really feel connected to me and what was going on. And I did have associates and they felt like they hired me and then they got pawned off on the associates. And that is not a problem that I was ever able to solve because my associates were fantastic. They're both fantastic lawyers now who are doing phenomenally. Um, but that's not what the clients wanted. 
So I kind of took that to heart and I just decided to scale back because I had a whole bunch of clients. When you have an associate, you have more clients. I had a client, I had a hundred clients. Now I have 60. So I intentionally scaled back so I could give more what they see as more attention because they don't necessarily know that these, some of these texts and emails are canned. So it's not as if I'm not, I'm just blindly pushing buttons and they're getting responses. I am giving them responses, but it's usually a response that I've given to another client. So it's just canned in that sense. And so they feel more connected with us now and they just really aren't complaints. You're not going to see anything since probably like 2011 that says anything negative about how we run our firm, how we charge our clients, our communication policies. Cause you would expect if, you know, I've had this policy of no phone calls for seven years, <laughs> if it was going badly, you'd see something about it. And it's just not. And it was actually before I really had that policy in place that people were complaining they couldn't get in contact with me. So I had to fix it. To follow up on uh, Kareem's question before we go back to the Facebook ones, what about with other attorneys? Did you get pushback there? And then after some time, they're like, oh, man, you know, Regina really does have it all figured out. Um, I don't know if that's what they say. They just know that I don't care. So okay. I don't you know. I don't work for them. I'm not their paralegal. I don't have to abide by the schedule. Now, I'm not rude. If you send me an email that is and this is the key, is it advancing the case forward? If you're sending me email telling that my client is a piece of shit, here's a, a tip. I probably already know <laughs> So that's not advancing the case forward. So if you are sending me a, a you know settlement offer or, hey, we need to get this issue worked out, I will respond within a reasonable time frame, which is usually less than two days and two days is really at the outlier and it just depends on um, how important it is so we definitely triage and i respond to the most important ones right away and the less important ones takes a little bit less time so sometimes there's a little bit of pushback but i'm just really polite about it and say you know i don't work all hours of the day i like to have my off time i respond as quickly as i can and in a manner and at the speed that i think the situation calls for and you know that's that. All right. So that kind of dovetails nice into uh, Ami's next question. So we'd like to hear more about your first, you know, five to 10 years of solo practice. Um, obviously mm -hmm. now everyone knows you as a juggernaut and known commodity, but what about before then? How about, you know, paying the bills in those earlier years? Ooh, early years. This, I like this. This is story time. So <laughs> I was a very young attorney for a couple of reasons, some impressive, some not. The non-impressive is that I skipped kindergarten. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Um, my mom was a teacher. It really wasn't a fair fight. But um, I finished school early in three years. So when I went into law school, I was 19. So when I finished, I was 22. So I became a lawyer at 22. So I was super, super, super young. And I was with Georgia Legal Services. And I, um, I did a lot of family law there. I think mainly because I said I didn't hate it and that was code apparently for I love it and want all of the cases. Um, so I kind of got into family law then and this was, oh gosh, 2001. So we're barely into emailing at that point. Um, but I did make it a point to try to, you know, incorporate more email and technology as much as I could working for Georgia Legal Services, which was on a shoestring budget at that point. Um, so I did that for two years, two and a half years. And then I went to a disability law firm for about a year. And that was, that was fine, but I missed being in the courtroom. And then I joined a firm who I'm not going to mention, a very national family law firm. And I hated it. I was there for six months and left. 
So I had already always planned to start my own firm, but I did not expect that I was going to be at a firm for six months to start my own firm, but it was that or murder. And, um, I not going to jail. So I had to quit. So I've been on my own since 2005 and that was only four years out of law school. So I definitely did some things wrong. <laughs> and one of those things was trying to keep up with the Joneses because I grew really big, really quickly. Um, I happened to be kind of a computer nerd, which <laughs> you may know by now. So I could build a website. In 2005, there weren't a lot of the small firms that had websites. So if you had a website, I mean, I was dominating, <laughs> you know, SEO stuff because it was just huge firms and me. <laughs> so people that didn't have huge firm money were all hiring me. So I grew very, very quickly and thought it was going to last forever. Spoiler alert, it did not <laughs> because 2008 happened. So essentially everything sort of burned to the ground <laughs> and I had to sort of start over and rebuild and um, reduce my expenses because um, at some point I had $70,000 a month in overhead, which is a problem because <laughs> if you make, you know, $70,000, you're breaking even. And it's for some people, 70000 is a lot of money to make. But if you're just breaking even, it's not. So burned the ground, started over and just sort of did it right the second time in, certain, in terms of implementing policies that would fit with what I wanted, hiring people that fit in the culture that I wanted, and making sure that the focus was on delivering legal services at flat fees, um, not compromising quality or service or anything like that. And we were just really laser focused on that. So the short answer to that is it's only really been since 2009 that I've sort of been on the correct path, I would say. So that's a great, a great lead in. Um, Anshu has another question about, and, and this is something I was going to ask as well. Um, can you give us some tips on how you figure out your flat fees? Like if you could go back in time and start it over now, instead of pulling it out of your butt, like what would you do to figure out those flat fee costs? <laughs> um, well, here's what you don't do. You don't charge $2,500 for a custody case um, when there's <laughs> six CD-ROMs of pornographic content <laughs> that may yeah. or may not have to do with a custody issue. That was a horrible mistake. So really the key is stages. I mean, charging per stage and charging appropriately per stage and for several reasons. Number one, it gives you an out. If you charge $5,000 for the whole case and you decide halfway through that you hate your client, you want to withdraw, you're going to have to give some money back because you promised to do the whole case for $5,000. So I don't do that. So I charge an initial case for discovery. So there are times where I realize during this process, the client is a pain in the behind. So I will hustle, hustle, hustle to make sure we get through the entire discovery process. So I say, great, here's all the documents that I've given to opposing counsel. Here's all the documents I've received, super organized. I have now completed the stage of the case. I think it's time for you to move on and we are now going to sever our relationship. So having those sort of levels built into the fee agreement is helpful on a variety of levels and it helps your client make informed decisions as well. So, you know, if, your client's upset because her husband is cheating with the waitress at Hooters and wants to depose said waitress, you know, that's fine. You just know per the flat fee, you're going to pay $5,000 per deposition and you can decide whether or not it's worth it for, you know, Bambi to come in and talk about how they met over lobster claws or whatever. Um, <laughs> same thing when we're in mediation and we're going to go to trial, there's no speculation about how much it's going to cost. You're going to know I'm going to charge five to $7,500 per day. And we estimate that it's going to be a five day case. So 
you know, is this a $25,000 problem in mediation or do you really, can you just give up and give him the big green egg? And Reminds me very much of uh, the Chris Rock thing where he's like, just make bullets, 5,000 bucks a bullet, and be like, you know what, you need to shoot that guy. Exactly. It was worth it to depose so-and-so for that price. <laughs> now, um, all right, we have two questions that, that are basically the same question uh, from Andrew and from Melanie's. So do you track your hours? What about your staff? And where do you track? And what if you need to create an invoice? How are you doing that? Um, I use Monday.com. So for people that don't, Monday.com is a project management tool that is meant for that sort of space. And I have 100% hijacked it for my purposes. So I've created a, a practice management system from monday.com. And what I love about monday.com is there's experts all over the world on Fiverr that can set it up for you. And number two, it is probably the most Zapier friendly app that you can have. <laughs> it will zap with anything with your grandma. <laughs> There's none that will not connect to Monday. So there's just so many integrations and automations that you can do. It fixes almost any problem that I have. So one of them that I have is I do track everything, but all I have to do is enter what I do and the client, which is in a sort of a drop down list. So it's just a matter of drop down list. This is what I did. And it has automatic timers in terms of when I start a task and when I stop a task. I've got automations, like if I send an email, it can automatically send to my time sheet that I sent the email and bill for it. So it's not me actively sort of keeping track. So the only thing that I have to do, which is the second question is, I have the Monday, I actually don't really do a fancy invoice because it's not necessary. I just go to monday.com, I export that sucker as a CSV file, make it Excel, slap my logo on it and keep it moving. <laughs> It's funny. I'm pretty sure every single person I've talked to that uses Monday is like, well, Regina does it. So I was like, let me just use Monday. So <laughs> I think you've started a, a whole uh, a whole trend among lawyers. Oh, I love, I could talk about Monday all day long. It's fantastic. It's the only good Monday. <laughs> it's the only good Monday, yeah. All right. Um, Ami asks, do you ever have an issue where a judge won't let you off a case yet your client won't pay for that needed stage? <sighs> Very rarely. Um, so that's actually why I make my first fee so large where I'm never going to feel like, oh crap, I got stuck. Um, I don't ever feel stuck financially because I've charged so much in the beginning that it's never going to be that big a deal. Most, and I have narrowed my practice at this point to one particular County where everybody loves me. So I'm just gonna like, cheers, <laughs> go where everybody knows your name. <laughs> you stay there. Um, so I've never had a problem with judges letting me out. If I ask to get let out, they're going to let me out because they know I have a good reason. And yeah, so I don't, I don't have that problem a lot. Yeah. It's always, it's always nice in that situation. If you don't abuse the privilege, the judge gives you the, uh, assumes right. you to be correct on the times. Right. Cause I'm, I'm not, I do not file a lot of withdrawals and I honestly rarely file over money. I'm trying to remember the last time I withdrew, withdrew for money and it's been years. If I withdraw, it's because the client cussed somebody out. <laughs> Makes subtle sense. So I want to go back to the flat fee. I mean, we're, we've got uh, about nine minutes left, so we'll probably end up in, end at about five. But in terms of the flat fee, how often are you tweaking your flat fees? All the time. Okay. All the time. There's always something that comes up that I haven't thought about. So I probably change it 10, 12 times a year. Um, just something will come up or a client will raise an issue that I haven't thought of. And anytime I do, I keep a whiteboard and a scribble it down and make sure I don't forget. And then I just add it to the fee agreement. So 
So the, la- the latest I have was the issue with the client that I fired because he literally did cuss everybody out. And unfortunately, in my Canva presentation, I said that I was going to keep the portal up for 90 days after the case is closed. Why would I say that? But now I'm stuck to it. <laughs> I've changed it to where it's 10 days after the case um, is closed. But yeah, I'm constantly tweaking it and updating it for different things that come up in different cases that I didn't expect. There we go. Listen, I got to tell you, I got to, if I could give you a, I mean, I'll give you a fake award. If I give you a real award, you've gotten the most questions and engagement from our audience of anybody in a hundred and something episodes. So congratulations. Um, So I know that has caused us to go a little, a little here and there, because I want to make sure that we get everybody's questions asked and answered. Um, Is there anything else you want to make sure that we talk about as we get towards the end of this conversation? Um, I I think the, the biggest takeaway for me is if you're thinking about flat fees and you're thinking about streamlining and, you know, making it more about efficiency is for it not to feel that way from the customer experience. And it's not that hard to do. People don't realize these emails are canned because I don't write them in a canny sort of way. And people just want to know what's going on. And I think that's why, unless they're sociopaths, which is sometimes possible, but if they're non-sociopaths, they're calling because they really want to know what's going on. They want to feel, they want to get updated. And our clients really don't have that issue because the way our portal is designed, anytime anything is, is uploaded, they automatically get an email and they can link to it. And if they have questions, they can put in the comments below. So there's just a ton of engagement that they're getting from us. So they don't need to see a bill that says we did this, this, and this. They know it already because it's been uploaded to their portal and they just kind of have a constant stream of information coming from us. You know, when we get discovery, they get videos and they get instructions and this is what you need to do and here's a link that you have to click on. They're just so engaged in the process throughout that they're not left wondering what's happened. And we have all kinds of stuff like, you know, Canva things of here's your divorce process here's where you are, here's where you're going. <laughs> so we avoid a lot of those questions by being proactive and just putting all that information out there so they can see where they are and they're not left just totally in the dark. Well, and that's like the thousandth benefit of niching down. Like you, your client is going through this once, but you have had clients go through this hundreds of times. And so it's yep. really easy to tell them the common things that they are thinking and also the common things that they aren't thinking about at that time, but need to think about. Right. And I'm a big fan of giving people homework, to be honest. It keeps them busy and sort of out of my hair. So I do that from the beginning. So even when I'm entering a case and even though there's no opposing counsel yet, I'm not a moron. I know they're going to serve discovery. So I just send them off to like, hey, I know this is coming. So why don't you go ahead and start gathering all this stuff? And then it keeps them busy. Spoken like a, the true child of a teacher. <laughs> given, given all your clients homework. Love it. All right, so I want to talk about our next episode. Um, We are going on hiatus with the show for almost a month. I'm going to Hawaii on Sunday, and I'm out for the rest of the of February. That's my uh, my Valentine's Day treat to my wife. She gets to go to Hawaii, and her treat to me is I get to take her to Hawaii. So, (laughs) Um, but we will be back on March 3rd at 2 p.m. Eastern. So March 3rd, 2 p.m. Eastern, with Davina Frederick talking about scaling your law firm to one million dollars with total ease. Um, and that will be, so Thursday, March 3rd, 2 PM. So we hope to see everybody there, but I'm not going to let you go, Regina, without like a final nugget of wisdom. You've shared so much. You've answered, you know, a dozen questions from our wonderful listener watchers here. If somebody has been listening to this though, for the last 55 minutes and they remember absolutely nothing you said, except what you're going to share now, 
what would be your biggest piece of advice to help other lawyers be the exhibit A of a successful attorney such as yourself? Um, well, I'll give two things. One is you don't have to lawyer like everybody else does, and that's okay. So as long as you're doing it within ethical guidelines, it's okay to be a little different. It's okay to not accept phone calls. It's okay to not accept emails. You're, you're allowed <laughs> to do it the way that you want to do it. Um, especially if it makes you happier, if it allows you boundaries, if it allows you to go to Hawaii with your lovely wife for three weeks, <laughs> that's a good thing. The second thing, because people always just kind of ask me what's something that resonated with you. And the quote that has resonated with me for years and years and years and years is you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. And so that means pushback from pretty much anybody from opposing counsel, from clients, you know, I don't really engage in that kind of thing. I keep laser focused on what's important in my case, what's important in my life and everything else is just, you know, meaningless to me. So, you know, once I kind of got that sort of Zen perspective, it made my life, you know, a million times easier. I love it. All right. So we did get a couple other questions coming in, but I want to be cognizant of your time and my time. Is it cool if I just tag you on the other questions and you could drop? Oh yeah, and- yeah you can. Okay. Awesome. All right. So with that being said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And hope to see everybody again on March 3rd at 2 p.m. at our next episode of Exhibit Attorneys. Have a wonderful week or wonderful month, I guess, at this point, everybody.